Welcome back to the Wolf of Queen Street podcast. Today on the show, Dr. Paul Wood, an author, a father, um, a business owner, successful person, also written a book, How to Escape from Prison, two different books, but also one thing to, to point out there, you have served 11 years in jail for murder, um, and you are trying to change the world from your, your path and your story. And I thought I'd just read the back two paragraphs for people um, that might not know you about yourself, um, Dr. Paul Wood, if I didn't say doctor, my apologies. At 18, Paul Wood thought he had lost everything. He had committed an act he knew would send him to prison for many years. To a young man like Paul, it might as well have been the rest of his life. Plunged into a nightmarish world of extreme violences, celerity confinement, gang allegiances, drugs, vindictive wardens, and regular stabbings. Paul has spent the next 11 years confined in some of the New Zealand's toughest jails, and you've come out of that. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you, and we've been communicating for almost a year to get to this point, is you've gone to one of the darkest places, experienced the darkest things that most, almost anyone in the world will have, and you've come out the other side, and you're trying to change the world, acknowledging your mistakes, acknowledging the fuck-ups, but going, I'm going to make a difference. And uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, goedemiddag. <laughs> Thanks so much, mate. Oh, no, it's so good. You know, like, um, I was listening to you, and I'm listening to your accent yes. as well, eh? Gets and, a bit thick. You know, but I, I love that. Like, I love, like, that goedemiddag, you know, goedemiddag, like Afrikaans yeah. is such a guttural language. Yeah, such a thick one. And I'll tell you why I even know a little bit is because I came across some uh, South African uh international drug cartel hitmen and heavies when I was in prison. <laughs> Brilliant. Keep so going. there were a couple of these guys, right, and uh, they were from Joburg, of course, yes. and they were ex-South African Special Forces. Mm -hmm. They got bored? Well, when, uh, when the apartheid ended, because they were apartheid era, so oh, yes. Special Forces. Correct. So, of course, when uh, the apartheid ended, they disbanded mm -hmm. all of the South African Special Forces. I think the Defence Force more broadly as well, a lot of people mm -hmm. you know, were just gone understandable considering how they'd spent a lot of their time yeah. prior to that. It was a reset opportunity. But then you had all these guys who had, what is it they say in Taken? I have a very particular skill set, yeah. you know, who had a really particular skill set and were now purposeless. Yeah. And they used so, to be called the Rickies. Yeah, right. Well, check these guys out, right? And they belong to uh, a special forces unit called uh, Crowbar, what's that in South in Afrikaans? Is it Kufu or something? Yeah, yeah, Kufu. Yeah, right, Kufu, okay. yeah. And so these oh. were guys who were notorious during their operation mm -hmm. for, like, having ear necklaces mm -hmm. and also as well, like, they would uh, cut the scrotum mm -hmm. off people they'd killed and turn it into tobacco pouches <laughs> or, like, a little thing to put on the gear shift in your car. Yeah. Like they, they were hardcore people. Yeah. And it's an interesting one, though, because, you know, these two guys who I met, and they were in prison because, mm -hmm. again, they'd been involved in some international drug trafficking with New Zealand where they had come over to collect some money that was owed mm -hmm. and ended up stepping into a police operation here, getting arrested, mm -hmm. going to prison for a little bit. And the interesting thing is they weren't psychopaths. They were just guys who had followed a particular path and had developed a high level of competency in an mm -hmm. area which made them very dangerous and then didn't have any purpose or direction for that and ended up, you know, going to the dark side. Yep. And I, I tell you what, I always remember one of the things, one of the guys who taught me a little bit of Afrikaans said to me, and he goes to me, and, you know, this will be a, a piss poor attempt at accent, <laughs> but he goes, 
I don't care who you are, Blue. The first six or seven people you kill, you feel bad. <laughs> and I just remember listening to that and just going like, my God, these people just come from such a different world. Yeah. And they used to run a whole lot of security for nightclubs in mm-hmm. Joburg. That's part of what their uh, criminal enterprise did. And they would tell me about how what they would do is everyone carries guns, of course, mm-hmm. in Johannesburg. And when they go in a nightclub, you have to check your gun in. Yep. And what they would do is they would get some of the mo- more common guns, like Glocks, stuff yep. like that. And when someone would check it in, uh, if it was someone who they knew was quite a regular person who would come back again, they would swap the barrel on it. They would then use that barrel to go out and commit murders mm-hmm. and then change it back again when that person would return another time. Hey, everyone. Sorry for the interruption. Just a quick shout out from our sponsors. My name is Kenyon Clark, and I'm the founder of the Duval Group. We are a large-scale property developer, and alongside our property development business, we also have our gym business based in Manico and with new locations opening soon. We're passionate about serving our community, and we do that through the Duval Foundation. And I hope that we are able to be a voice of encouragement and inspiration for a whole new generation of entrepreneurs. Let's get back to the show. So you'd have these people walking around who forensically, if their guns were ever confiscated or yeah. whatever, would have all of these murders associated with them. Which and they did nothing? Re- no, which they had done nothing. It was these guys... And I'd hear stories like this and just be like, you know, just mind-blowing. It's crazy. My parents, my mom specifically, ran one mm. of the largest security and cash and transit businesses back in South Africa. So I'm well aware of the Kufuts, mm. Mm. these people, yeah. their powers and what they do um, and the stories. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the – just uh, before we get back on your story, but yeah, this yeah, a, yeah. Uh, interesting story was there was a crazy one – Back in South Africa, um, there was a private cash movement that had to happen once a week that wasn't never disclosed. It God, was always, yeah. but it was, it was controlled yeah. from businesses from yeah. a, a location A to location B. Yeah. It was done on a Friday. Yeah. Only a handful of people knew about it. Yeah. So bad. One Friday, a, um, a timing mishap happened, and they couldn't get the person to take the transport. So my mom's sitting at work there, and she goes, "Hey." Why don't I, the cash is sitting at her location. Why, I'm just going to drive down the road. It was only yeah. like a few kilometers down the road yeah. to, to, to shift us. And she was just about to do it. And a couple of managers stepped up and said, hey, you know, um, hey, Linda, we've got nothing to do. Um, we're aware that you've got to do this. Why yeah. don't we shift this for you? It's Friday afternoon. Let us just take it. And she was like, no, fine. Guys climbed in, unmarked vehicle. Un- unmarked amount of money mm. and drove down the road and two blocks away at the first set of lights they pulled up car pulled up in front of them and mom still says she could hear it from the office the two guys sitting in the front seat ended up in the back seat from the oh. from from the from the ammunition yeah the guy was still sitting there with a cigarette still lit burning yeah. away yeah. and um crazy absolutely crazy and yeah. Only way, if you think about it, was that if they didn't come to my mom to say to do that, that she would have done it. And it was an inside job, looks like it. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? But, I mean, like, as a Kiwi, you know, like, I hear stuff like that. I hear stuff like these guys doing it. And I'm just like, just such a different world over there, right? It's vastly different from, you know, I grew up in it. Like I said, my parents ran in the security. My mom did that. So I grew up around firearms. We went out. I've spoken about this. I would go out at night to a restaurant. My dad would have a nine more on the side. He slept with, both parents slept with guns on both sides. So the 
the normality of violence was around that you, you, you mm. got used to it. I flew back. And risk, right? Huh? Risk of violence. The normality the of, violence, of having yeah. to deal with so, the risk of it. Yeah. How crazy was this? As a yeah. 15 or 16-year-old kid, now you will relate to this because, mm. you know, mm. you, you went a little bit pear-shaped in your teens. You know, I would walk around with my mates at night in yeah. these big trench coats, and I'm not going to tell you, but I had more than one thing, and all of us yeah. had more than one thing on us. Yeah. Just hanging out, walking around the yeah. neighborhood. If something happened, something happened, right? Yeah. And that was like a, a casual Friday night. Yeah. And yeah, and it's 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 a weird societal piece that you you get brought up in us, mm-hmm. um, and the normality of it, and yeah. um, the the death and the murder for five dollars or ten dollars, yeah. or because you said no, or you looked at someone differently, right? Mm. And I know through your story and what you've seen in mm. prison, you've met. The one percent of the one percent mm, that mm. you look at me wrong, fuck, and we're yeah. going to sort you right. Yeah, but that's not norma- that's not really the New Zealand culture of that extreme no. compared to what you see there. Well, I mean, one of the areas in which we're incredibly lucky is, is it's not easy access to firearms in yep. New Zealand, and I know that. Like, I remember as a teenager, you know, like I mm. used to um, really love it if I came across firearms. I used to, you know, do <sighs> things that I really regret now, and yep. that would piss me off so bad if it happened to me. Like when I was a teenager, I spent a lot of time doing burglaries yep. to finance, you know, my life and it was just criminal enterprise. Before and, before you go yeah. into the story, yeah. let's just take a couple of steps back for anyone yeah. that doesn't know about it. Why did you get yourself as a teen into this? What triggered yourself? Was it mm. uh, upbringing, mm. uh, boredom? Let's just get mm. to that and then we can go on to your story of the burglary. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Um, so I was born in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. The 1980s were the most formative period for me, I reckon, mm. 1980s, early 90s. And I just grew up getting some pretty standard messages. Yeah. As a male, I shouldn't feel any emotions. I'd associate with vulnerability or weakness. And uh, I grew up with the idea that violence was the measure of the man. Yeah. And part of that was that I certainly spent a lot of time around people who were violent and who were good at violence. Mm. I did martial arts from an early age. And I really, you know, like want my kids to do martial arts, mm-hmm. but with a really different lens, yep. which is, you know, you build the capacity and the discipline so you don't have to use it. But my exposure was quite different yep. than that. <laughs> like I remember once, for example, uh, overhearing a conversation between my oldest brother, who was, you know, he's such a good guy, mm-hmm. such a great fighter, and he was a notorious street fighter when I was growing up as a kid. And I remember overhearing a conversation between him and a senior instructor where the instructor was saying to him, look, if you really want to test where you're at, you need to go to this particular nightclub Mm -hmm. and have a fight with about four people at the same time. You know, and this is guaranteed (laughs) to be a good opportunity for that, and that'll give you a feel for where you're at. True fight club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was like martial arts in the 1980s New Zealand was very different. I mean, there was even a big case where a guy who ran uh, Auckland – martial arts mm. school, I think his name was Robert Gimmel, uh, you know, got in trouble because one of his students died mm. because they're doing like survivalist style yeah. training, drowns in a river. And apparently the story was he had a gun put to his head and was told, you know, you're going in the river. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just a different period. And it was that period as well where it was pre, uh, uh, prior to uh, mixed martial arts existing yeah. or anything. And there was just this massive like division between different types of martial arts where you know, like we would sometimes go and train at different clubs to just like have Learn fights, about, yeah. have fights, right. and see how how tough different disciplines were in that. It was a far more adversarial environment, a tough one, 
And, yeah, I just missed some of the nuance Mm -hmm. around martial arts being for building capability that you don't use. And so I used it as a vehicle for being seen and valued. Mm -hmm. It was something that was respected. And I've always had a real yearning to be respected, to belong, to be Mm -hmm. accepted. And that's a human thing. We're members Mm -hmm. of a social species. Unfortunately, what was seen and valued and what I placed an emphasis on was violence when mm-hmm. I was growing up. And my household wasn't violent, you know. My my parents were certainly no more violent than the standard, probably less so, mm-hmm. in fact, I would argue, in terms of standards of the day. Uh, my brothers and I certainly engaged in a lot of violence mm-hmm. towards each other. There's nothing unusual in that, eh? Yeah. That's, that's, anyone who's got more than one boy will know that. Uh, what I would say, though, is that, Unfortunately, in the period, uh, the sort of violence we engaged in was probably a bit different than, say, my two boys do. I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and they certainly fight with each <laughs> other. Heaps, we kick them out of the house like my parents used to do to us. Sometimes you just got to do that. Uh, the difference is, though, is that they're also really encouraged to be kind to each other, mm-hmm. and they demonstrate a lot of that. In the period in the era I was growing up in, kindness, em- kindness em- would have em- been seen as weakness. Oh, yeah, and empathy, right? Yeah. Empathy, what the, <laughs> you know, that's that's something that I've had to learn as an yeah. adult post-prison yeah. is empathy because, you know, I, I was going through all of this and uh, a, a lot of the people I associated with were people who were involved in criminal activity, you know, family gang membership, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, and hit my teenage years, got into alcohol and drugs, you know, and, and people are complex in the world's messy. Eh? Mm. There's no one simple answer. I mean, like part of it was I start to experience these emotions I don't think I'm supposed to have, right, like a bit yeah. of self-doubt and worry and that and, you know, you self-medicate. But also another part of it was I was a young man attracted to chaos. It was bloody yeah. exciting. All my friends were doing drugs and that. So, hey, risk-taking was part of what I did, so I did that as well. But unfortunately, uh, the choices associated with that just – put me into situations where uh, there was greater risk of violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time I was 18, I was completely off the rails, uh, very much living a criminal lifestyle. I'd, you, you, you're addicted to drugs at 18, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd spent my whole life thinking I was going to join the infantry as soon as mm-hmm. I was old enough. And I'd actually done the initial enlistment mm-hmm. test for that. But I was also consuming heaps of drugs and, and engaged in crime. And had I made it, uh, through to basic training, mm-hmm. that could have been a really different direction yep. in my life. However, in the meantime, I caught up with a drug dealer, which was nothing unusual in yep. that, right? Uh, but when I caught up with him, I didn't realise that he was someone who had a, a really unhealthy interest in adolescent males mm-hmm. and uh, sex acts, mm-hmm. and he didn't realise that violence was my comfort zone while yep. I'm truly... One of the things I figured out as well in my adolescence, and it's an interesting one, right, because I don't want to come across like I was a tough guy. I certainly wasn't, mm-hmm. but I was someone who was around a lot of violence, and I was reasonably good at it. And one of the things that I'd learned, for example, is that, you know, it's the anticipation of getting hit that's worse than getting yeah, hit. Yeah, correct. You know, once the adrenaline kicks in and all that sort of stuff, you're all good. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're worrying about it happening, that's when you also have to really sort of deal with the the, the stress and the anxiety and so I was someone who was used to getting into fights, um, getting hidings, giving people hidings. So that was my go-to in any type of situation. And also as well, 
you know, my mum had just died yeah. three days earlier. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, you know, she was the one soft person in my life. Right? Eh? Yeah. It's an interesting one, though, because when I look back on the relationship with her, like, she was the one sort of really source of potential softness and support in my life. But I never really sought that from her. Mm -hmm. She was there and she was a soft influence. But I never really fully utilised that potential support because, again, I didn't think you were supposed to, yeah. right? You know, you sort it out yourself. <laughs> And she dies, and I, I wasn't dealing with that. Catch up with this guy. Uh, he attempts to manipulate the situation for his own ends. I end up killing him. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be really clear as well that, you know, I went way beyond what was required of me mm -hmm. in terms of self-defense, hence the murder conviction. And yeah. by the way, I hate even saying that word. Yeah. You know, like it's taken me a long time to even be able to use that word. For years and years, I'd say, oh, you know, like I was convicted of killing someone yeah. and this sort of stuff. But the reality is, is I was convicted of murder. Yeah. And the reason I was convicted of murder is because there was a point where I had defended myself and I could have allowed him to leave my house. Mm -hmm. And instead, I chose to take actions that without a shadow of a doubt were going to end his life. And as a result of that, I was convicted of murder. And it's funny because earlier on when you introduced me as well, you were talking about how I take ownership of stuff. That's been a journey, eh? In terms Long of one. that. Oh, hell yeah, yeah, because it's exactly the type of situation, and because of the type of offender he was, mm -hmm. which is a sexual offender, right? Yeah. You know, it's so easy to minimize your actions. And for years, people mm. would say to me, I mean, prison guards mm. would say to me, oh, hey, good job. Yeah. You know, I would have done the same thing. I even had a prison psychologist say to me, oh, you know, like I've had to work with a lot of people who have been the victims of the guy you killed, and you're better off being in here for killing him than being one of his victims. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is the people who share that stuff believe that stuff. And I understand those perceptions, yeah. but they weren't perceptions that helped me take ownership of my actions. They were perceptions that helped me sort of adopt a bit of a victim stance. Yeah. Do you know what I mean by that? Because you took, you took what, seven or nine years or something to the point of actually being able to slowly get rid of that that, that, yeah. that, that chip you built up, right? Yeah. Working through it. And I, I know when in your book you've spoken how many years yeah. it took you know, you were enjoying the roller coaster of prison for the the first what five years or something, the ups yeah. and downs and all the all the stuff. You know, because you you hadn't been shown, learned, or the right ways or what the right no. ways could be, right? But also, I was eighteen. Yeah, you know what I mean. I was eighteen. I was still just using drugs to not have to deal with yeah. reality, and also as well, again, it's easier to feel like you're the victim rather than take ownership for your actions, True. right? But it's the most disempowered position you can possibly mm -hmm. be in in life. You know, one of the things I've really learned is no matter what the circumstances, no matter what happens, the most empowered thing you can possibly do is go, what's my role in this and what are the steps I can take now that take me out the other side? Yep. You know, look, the reality is I made all of the choices that put myself into that situation mm -hmm. that day, and I made all of the choices that earned me my place in the New Zealand prison system. Now, you know, if if I don't see it in that way, and if I go, oh, no, gosh, it was the circumstances mm. or it was this or that, then it's kind of like I'm just cast adrift in life and I just have to hope that things go well. Whereas when I'm in a position to go, no, no, no matter what's happened, no matter where I am, I can make choices mm -hmm. that create the opportunity for a better future and I can own the steps that I've taken that have led me here. You know, mm -hmm. that's what real freedom is about, yeah. right? So I'm going to ask you an asshole question. Oh, now I'm excited. Yeah. I'm going to ask you the one question, <laughs> yeah, and on. it can be taken the, either the right or wrong way. From your perspective, yeah. then and now, mm. did he deserve it? Uh, 
this is this is the challenge, right? Is that I am someone who, had I been the person who had died that day, mm -hmm. would have deserved it. Yep. Okay, I wasn't doing anything positive with my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing anything which had any kind of positive impact on other people. Quite the opposite. However, I have had the opportunity to reflect on the error of my ways and change my behaviour. Mm -hmm. Where now, I, I really try to make a positive contribution. Did he deserve it in that moment? You can say yes, but the problem is, is that fails to capture the complexity of a person's ability to change. Correct. And so, did he deserve in the moment? Okay, you can say yes to that, but did he deserve to never have the opportunity to reflect on his behaviour and change? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he deserved that. Yeah. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm conflicted, right? Yeah. I knew you would be. It's not yeah. an easy, it's but, not an easy but, question. But, but that's real. Yeah. That's real. It's like, you know, and a lot of the time I say, look, I, I really regret what I did and the damage it caused. I really regret killing him. And, and I, I do regret that. Mm -hmm. I regret depriving him of that opportunity. You know, however, I can only live my life looking forward. Correct. Right? I love this quote. I remember coming across this quote when I was in prison. I read heaps of philosophy when I was in prison once I started to educate myself. And it's a quote from the Dutch philosopher Kierkegaard. And he says, Life can only be understood looking backwards, but can only be lived looking forwards. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the most sincere thing I can do in terms of the regret I have around previous actions that have hurt people is through my behavior mm -hmm. today, how I live my life today, yeah. you know, and, and that's all I can hope to be judged by. Yeah, so true. So you get, you get um, found guilty, you go to jail, you know, everyone thinks you go to jail, you sit in a box and mm. you 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 stay in a box and rot away for whatever period of time you get sent to jail, right? And yeah. you'll come out and it'll be all fine and you just you, you don't have the normality. I, I, I say this over the satire, yeah, right? Yeah, normality yeah, yeah. and you and you're just gonna struggle to get back into society, especially mm. New Zealand, where we're such a free and yeah. you know, great country. Yeah. And then you go through your book and you go, What the fuck? And the stories and the shit mm. that is happening, mm. and you know, to, uh, you know, crash. I know you love talking about crash, um, <laughs> and you know, the weapons that are unlimitless, yeah. and the violence, the drugs, and stuff. Mm. I know. Talk me through some of that that people might not realize that we've put people away, mm. but there's almost more chaos, yeah, in this controlled supposal environment than yeah. there is out on the streets. Yeah, I mean. But how can we be surprised by it if we actually stop for a second to mm -hmm. think about what we're doing? We're creating an environment where we're going to put together all of the people who have been showing that they can't comply with society's <laughs> norms and laws. Let's put them all together, and then what we're going to expect, that that's not going to magnify? Yeah. You know, it's a crazy idea. One of the things we know from one of the uh, longest-running longitudinal studies into human behaviour in the world the Dunedin study, the Otago study, is that one of the things that we can do if we really want to prolong criminal offending mm -hmm. in young people is expose them to prison. Yeah. You know, putting people in prison makes it more likely they will carry on in, in criminal enterprise and activity. It doesn't shorten the duration of it. And part of that, from my perspective, is because we're members of a social species and we're contaminated by other people. Mm -hmm. I really think that we don't realise just how much we are influenced by other people in situations we find ourselves in. I think it's very easy, if your circumstances are reasonably good and reasonably functional, to be, 
of the attitude that, no, no, oh, well, I wouldn't do that, yeah. you know. Oh, no, you know, that wouldn't be the case with me. Whereas actually the vast majority of us, you know, our behaviour is really strongly influenced by the circumstances we're in, what the social norms mm-hmm. are. And in prison, you know, the norms are really distorted. What's considered to be the behaviour of an upstanding citizen and mm-hmm. member of that community is the completely opposite of what you'd want in actual society. You know, like in prison, you talk about people having form. Now, the original word form, it actually, its origins are from um, people's files, and mm-hmm. it comes out of the UK, right? It's yep. like if you've got form, you've got a really thick file oh, yep. of previous offences and the rest of it. But the way it's used basically is to say someone's got character. They're like a stand-up person. Mm-hmm. And the way it's used in prison is to say someone's got form is basically to say that if they are in any way disrespected, that that will be met with violence. And they will escalate the level of violence required to whatever it is mm-hmm. to dominate, mm-hmm. that they will retaliate, uh, that they will seek revenge, and that they will keep quiet, mm-hmm. eh? that they won't inform or involve the staff at all. And that's considered like the aspiration. That's yeah. reputationally like a really favourite. That's like calling thing. someone a GC, right? It's yeah, a- <laughs> yeah. And that's not the person I want moving in next door to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I think that's one of the ironies, eh? Is yeah, like, a, you know, like the, the prison mocks the, oh, are so different. Hundred percent. <laughs> it's so interesting too. Like the the prison abolitionist uh, yeah. movement, you know, which is this whole get rid of prisons, get rid of prisons. I tell you this right now, we want to minimise, absolutely minimise how many people we put in prison who don't need to be there. Yep. Uh, community-based sentences are more effective for young people in mm-hmm. terms of turning them away from crime. We know this, the research is strong. We don't want to put them there unnecessarily. But anyone who believes in that has not been around some of the people I've been around in terms of entirely getting rid of prisons. Mm-hmm. There are some people, and it is a minority even in the prison environment, but there are some people who just for the protection of all of us you know, really need to be removed from society. Yep. Now, what that might look like, hey, the prison is is containment. It's mm-hmm. certainly not uh, reducing the likelihood of reoffending by giving people the skills or the knowledge they need. In New Zealand, we have some small pockets of that that, that goes on that's fantastic, but yep. it's not the norm. It's not resource. It's not the priority. Uh, but there are definitely some people I don't want in my neighbourhood. Absolutely yep. not. But then there's the majority of people who are like me, who, if you can change their mindset and perspective around what's possible for them, what's possible to get out of life, and you can support that, you can encourage that and provide the right opportunities and steps forward, you know, will become positive contributing members of society. Yeah. Do you think people, I know I've looked from the outside in, a lot of people yeah. say if you can go into, you go into prison, do you think you can, a normal person can go in prison and not be affected? Can you hide enough or they won't allow you to? Uh, No, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like when I went to prison, like what I did is not the same as the advice I'd give other people Mm -hmm. going into prison. Like, so say, for example, if I was talking to someone who was going into prison now, one of the things I'd say is go sign on segregation. Just keep your head down. Don't worry about anyone else, no Mm -hmm. one else's opinion. You just do everything you can so that you're in the best possible position to get your life back on track Mm. when you leave. This is just a chapter. You just need to keep your head down and try and make that time worthwhile for you. That would be the advice I'd provide. When I went into prison, I was like, there's no way I'd go on segregation. Mm -hmm. That's where the scumbags are. That's where the child molesters are. That's where the police informants are. That was my attitude. Mm -hmm. 
But the reality is, is I wasn't focused on, you know, what was best for me. I was focused on, hey, what's consistent with my idea of what a stand-up person does, who they are, how they operate, and also making sure that my reputation wasn't damaged with people who don't even care about mm-hmm. me. People who, are, in fact, I would argue that if if there are people in there going, oh, I don't like what that guy's about, that's probably a good sign I'm on the right track. <laughs> but I didn't have that mentality, yeah. eh? And, and that's a tough one because, you know, you're already around undesirable people in prison and on segregation you're going to come across even more people who are undesirable mm-hmm. and standard ways that we judge others. But really it has to be about you and you having the opportunity to just focus on setting yourself up for success going forward and just doing the time. But for me, because I'd lived a criminal lifestyle, this was just, okay, this is my life. Yep. And as you mentioned uh, from reading of the blurb, you know, like I was 18, I was sentenced to 10 to life. Yep. So a minimum non-parole period of 10 years, maximum life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. You die in there. There's not many people who aren't released. We do have some in there who have never been released mm-hmm. and who never will be. Uh, we have lots who get recalled and have to go back and spend a lot of time in the, on that sort of revolving door conveyor belt. But for me at 18, I hadn't had enough life experience to be able to conceptualize that 10-year minimum. So for me, this was forever. Yeah. This is it. This is my new life, you know. Do you have to, again, like interesting ones from the outside in, do you have to get yourself a group or be, be belong yeah. to someone? Yeah, is that true from the, every movie that you walk in and go, and, yeah. okay, I've got to pick this group, that group. You've got to have brothers in some form. Mm, I think it depends upon the security level yep. you're in. Uh, the higher security you are, the the more the law of the jungle it is mm-hmm. and the more dangerous an environment it is and the more likely you are to just get attacked. I think what normally happens is when people go in, they go on remand, which is where you're awaiting mm-hmm. your trial. Yep. That's where you start. And I think in remand and in lower security, you can function really well just like keeping your head down mm. and trying to avoid the politics. Yep. And what's the politics? gang association, gambling, drugs, smoking, anything that just makes you a person of interest Mm. to other people. However, there's no avoiding it completely because the first thing that happens when you go into prison is the predominant gang in that unit is going to look at you and go, okay, what can we take off this person? Mm -hmm. And what they're going to do is they're going to approach you the first day that there's unlock and they're going to have a look at whether they can just turn you into prey, whatever that looks like. Now, if you're someone who already has gang affiliations in that, that makes it a different proposition. If you're part of the predominant gang, hey, you're right at home. If you're part of a minority gang, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, maybe that makes you an instant target or maybe it makes you enough of a challenge still where it's just easier to go for someone else. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you know, in the law of the jungle – you're better off attacking people who present the least possible risk. And so if there's someone who's an easy victim, then that's who people go for. I mean, one of the things that's always sort of, you know, I I definitely noticed when I was in prison is that, and I can only speak for North Island prisons, Mm -hmm. and North Island prisons are far more predominantly Māori and um, Mm -hmm. Pacific Island, predominantly Māori though, uh, than say the South Island prisons where you get a lot more Pākehā in there and it's more Pākehā gangs that run, run those and so in the North Island, if you have a young Māori or Polynesian guy come in, 
you know, they instantly just have the gangs approaching them, telling them, oh, hey, you know, you're with us now. And that's not an optional yep. thing. You know, you're with us. You're either just an associate where you're just going to do like lowly duties, like clean out senior gang members' cells, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Or maybe you're someone who shows some promise and you might get to prospect yep. right, at some point, with the, which is the pathway to becoming a patched gang member. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't want to associate, then you're going to have a hard time. And again, you know, for the young Maori and Polynesian guys, that would be far more noticeable. Uh, the Pacific Island. Because they can't cross, you can't cross race lines, can you? Well, it's interesting, eh? We're not the same as the US. Yeah. I mean, like, you, you know, you get a, a gang like the Mongol Mob, for yeah. example. Hey, they're, they're just like, uh, uh, any anyone's welcome. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If if you can demonstrate your worth there, it doesn't matter. I mean, originally, uh, you know, one of the founders was a Pākehā guy. Yeah. There's no issues there. Now, it is still predominantly Māori, but, mm. hey, all good. Um the nomads as well break away from the black power mm-hmm. in uh, 77. Basically, Dennis Hines said, oh, the black power is not hardcore enough for us. <laughs> this was sort of during a political period yeah. in New Zealand where actually the black power regularly used to hang out with and get on the piss with Robert Muldoon, mm-hmm. who was a prime minister. Yeah. And they were um, seen as a bit more political at that yeah. point. And like, uh, you know, some of the members were like, no, no, we're gang members. And they created the nomads. And, you know, same with the nomads. You know, they'll if you show worth from mm-hmm. their perspective they'll have you on i got asked if i wanted to prospect for them at one point by this guy and he just saw me as someone of high potential earning capability mm-hmm. and you know i was told i'd get an easy run in terms of that and then getting a patch you know i said no to that yeah. uh that guy ended up getting hot shotted eventually hot shot is mm-hmm. when someone has uh, or gets murdered, mm-hmm. but it's made to look like an overdose. Oh, okay. Yep. So what they do oh. is they give them a hot shot of drugs and then it's not investigated by the police. Yeah. And, you know, some of the other main gangs in New Zealand, yeah, I think really, to be honest with you, if you've got the right attitude in that, it's, it's not like the US mm-hmm. where it is that strong on racial lines. However, I would say in prison, you know, people do tend to associate um, on that basis. Yep. PI guys often stick together. Um you know, in the park yards. Really just depends where you are, but definitely not as hard <laughs> as the US and what you see there. Um during your time and we'll get into your mm. your your better part um soon, but mm. in your time, how many times did you feel you had to protect your life? <sighs> it, it's a really hard one to gauge, eh? I mean like an easier one to gauge would be to go, you know, how much of the time did I feel I was at risk yeah. or under threat? And which I would say was just like a constant thing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like you were talking about growing up in an environment where mm-hmm. there's just a, a greater potential for high stakes violence. Correct. And prison environments like that, right? And, you know, you're constantly at risk because it's not just about what you have done, it's also about having to deal with the unpredictable attacks of other people who have mental health issues. Yeah. A lot of people who end up in prison, hey, majority alcohol and drug issues, mm. but heaps of people who end up there as well have comorbidity with other mental health problems mm. going on. And if people get the idea that you've done something to slight them, to disrespect mm-hmm. them, or even just that they need a vehicle for their aggression, you can end up attacked for no apparent reason. 
you know, and that's definitely something that happened to me on multiple occasions. Also as well, you know, like I was attacked sometimes um, uh, on the basis of being Pākehā in prison. Yep. And I think that was more a thing where just, you know, people were pissed off with guards or with the system and that, and I was just seen as someone who could be, uh, I don't know, a representation of some of that system Mm -hmm. and was a focus of some of that aggression. Take me through the sort of the movement and change, right? So you mm. you get in there, you're 18. There's there's still drugs, violence, mm. all the rest mm. of it. Mm. Where's the where's the moment or the light bulb or the slow yeah. transition into what has made you the person you are today? The you're also the the first person that ever completed their masters, right? Yeah. You you commenced yeah. your doctorate while in, incarcerated yeah. as well. Um, you know that's not just an easy thing to go. Oh yeah. I'm going to do that. No. I, I'm going to start that. And I know it wasn't also well received in some instances of yeah. you wanting to educate yourself, right? Yeah. And not and not play the game. How, how did that come along? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I love the fact that you gave me a whole lot of options there. Yeah. Okay. In terms of how it happened, because what we love is we love this like Damascene experience. <laughs> I saw the light. And I <laughs> yeah. changed my ways. Hey, on a different path. Left it all behind me. But that's not how real mm. change works. Hey. Real change is a slow incremental process over time, yep. and it's generally nonlinear as well, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, there are a few different things that were were really like, let's say, milestones yep. along the way. One of them uh, was changing my mind around what education was about. Mm-hmm. So prior to going to prison, I always thought education was something that you did to get a job, to get a career, and I didn't have an interest in it from that perspective. You know, again, I was going to join the army, go mm-hmm. in the infantry, that sort of stuff. Didn't see that as crucial in that respect. Uh, also as well, I didn't see myself as someone who was capable of achieving academically. I'd been held back a year at school. You know, we didn't have ADHD and growth mindsets yep. and stuff like that when I was a kid. You know, we had behavioral problems and, you know, uh, I definitely didn't get the message that I was capable academically. I was someone who did show promise in areas mm-hmm. though I think like I remember always being pretty good at like figuring out car engines and that type of stuff and a big change for me was when I started hanging out with this guy in maximum security prison mm-hmm. who was one of New Zealand's most accomplished safe crackers you know he was a very clever guy but he inhabited a world that was based upon drug use and criminality mm-hmm. and so his intellect didn't end up having a vehicle for something more positive for society, but he was very good at what he did. And I used to spend a lot of time with him discussing, you know, how to defeat alarm systems, hide from heat sensors and police helicopters, the kind of uh, education you'd hope your tax dollars go on, eh, Lauren? Say, preparation for release, man, this stuff. But anyway, so that got me interested and curious and sort of like learning more. Mm. And I'd had a bit of encouragement from a number of people to study while I was in prison. And it was when I was in maximum security prison that I decided to start on that journey. And initially I was going to do a uh, legal executive course so that I could be a more effective Bush lawyer. Yep. One of the things I'd learned in prison, I actually really learned this from this mongrel mob member called Yogi, mm-hmm. who was serving 19 years at the time for multiple armed robberies mm-hmm. and escapes. And geez, he was a clever guy. <laughs> but, you know, again, like so many people, his intellect and his energy had been focused on what he knew from his life mm-hmm. experiences which was crime but he was someone who had told me hey man you've got to learn all the rules 
You've got to learn all of the legislation, all the rules, so that you can uh, manage your life better in here because the guards will regularly try and do things which actually they're not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And if you know all the rules in that, then you can use their own tools against them and you'll have a far easier time. And so I had taken that on board and I'd started learning the prison regulations and the rest of it. And I thought in line with that, doing a legal executive yep. course would be quite good. I couldn't get into that though. Mm-hmm. And I ended up being able to study psychology through Massey University. And there's no way I was doing it with the intent of doing a degree. Yep. That would have been way beyond me. But I enrolled in a couple of papers because I thought it would be like mind reading that I would learn. <laughs> you know, that's what I thought psychology yep. was. I had like a Hollywood idea of it. Yeah. And I only enrolled in Massey because they were the only people who offered it from a distance. And I did a couple of papers. And through the process of, of studying through them, I realized that, you know, my brain was like the rest of my body. The more I exercised it, the stronger it got, the easier it was to use. And I ended up passing those first two papers. When I passed them, I was in a punishment block for drug users at the time. So what they used to do is it used to get urine tests. Mm. If you come back with a positive or you get caught with drug paraphernalia or anything like that, you'd get a strike. And third time uh, drug users, third three strike mm. offenders would get kicked out of that prison to a punishment block in a different prison. And that's where I was. And I had lots of people around me who were representations of what my future could look like if I carried on down that path. And so I knew what it could look like. Mm. And I just passed these papers and they made me realize, oh, I could actually get out of here with something worthwhile yep. if I devote my time to this. And I hadn't really had a massive amount of experience in my life of succeeding in areas that I could be proud of publicly. Like with my criminality when I was young, I'd do things that would get respect with my friends. Yep. But that was still secret stuff that I knew would get me in trouble if other people knew it, right? Whereas that was my first sort of experience of like, you know, achieving academically, passing these papers where I was like, oh, I'm proud of this. Mm-hmm. And other people can know about this. And it doesn't have to be something I can keep secret. And I love that. I love that feeling, that feeling of pride. Mm-hmm. And it was something I wanted to pursue more. And so I carried on down that path. But again, it wasn't straightforward, man. It was slow. It was incremental. And the more I studied, the more my world broke open. Yeah. You know, the, the original word for educate means to lead out of to lead out of the darkness of your own ignorance. That's what it did for me. And I tell you what, people who inhabit that environment, stay in that environment, are generally people who come from really small worlds. You know, education made me realize I was just capable of so much more. There was so much more interesting stuff out there I could do. Yeah, that's so powerful. And so you went through, you got your degree, psychology, mm. you, you did mm. your master's, yeah. and then you did started on your doctorate for social economy or what did you do your yeah, doctorate? Yeah, psychology, psychology as well. Psychology, yeah. Yeah, and, and the area I focused on was in individual differences, how we differ from each other mm-hmm. as people in terms of personality, you know, ability to cope with stress, yeah. intelligence, stuff like that. Yeah, and you finished that once you came out, right, because you, you yeah. left prison and stuff. One thing I want to get into just, uh, just, uh, just for a couple of minutes mm. is – Talk me through. You spend uh, what's it? Ten years, ten months, and two yeah, days, right? Yeah, I'm close there. I think yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm almost right there. Um, did were you prepared to come into society? Uh, I, I don't think you can be prepared. Mm-hmm. Did the prison system think about it or oh, facilitate oh, absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. So for someone like myself who serves a really long period of time, they don't just 
drop you out the gate. Yeah. You have to do reintegrative paroles mm-hmm. first. And that's where you go along and the parole board says, okay, look, we, we have confidence, mm-hmm. you know, in your ability to be released soon. Yep. But first we need you to undertake these steps that will prepare you to more effectively make that transition. So I used to do things like um, I, I, I was moved into self-care, which we mm-hmm. have in some of the, the prisons in New Zealand. We don't have enough of it, but we do have it in some places, and that's where you have to cook for yourself mm-hmm. and clean for yourself and that, which are valuable skills, yep. eh, when you're released, but also as well you get taken to the supermarket mm-hmm. to go and do the groceries, supervise, that sort of stuff. And then you'd start off getting small leaves of maybe like two hours, four mm-hmm. hours, and then you know up to sort of like – uh, 72 hours was the longest ones you'd end up getting once you'd built up to those. Yep. And those help prepare for release. I'll tell you what, man, I used to hate those. They were such an interesting thing. I hated them in the sense that I so loved them and look, looked forward to them. And I'd go on these leaves and I'd get this taste of what freedom would be mm-hmm. like, but then I'd have to come back to prison. Yeah. And it sucked yeah. so bad. The emotional back. drop from that, right? Yeah, man. That's why, like, a lot of people choose just not to have any visits or anything mm-hmm. when they're in prison. And that's just because it it hurts emotionally. Mm-hmm. It's hard emotionally yeah. to be reminded of what you're missing. Sometimes it's easier to just cut that stuff off and to just, you know, focus on getting through. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they prepare you for release in that way. Uh, one of the ironies here is that can only happen if you're low enough security. Yep. So if you're really high security, then you won't get any of that preparation for release stuff. If you're really high security, you also won't get the opportunity to do any of the reintegrative programs that they offer in prison because you're considered to be too low a likelihood of success. Mm-hmm. And so the most dangerous people are the people who end up with the greatest chance of reoffending because they just get dropped out the gate. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, and then they wonder why yeah. people are just coming back from that. Um, you know, so you you obviously get back yourself into society, you know, and it's been good a good few years from that point to where you are now, yeah. right? That you know, one of you know New Zealand's top keynote speakers, mm. uh, a psychologist in the country that's going around uh, and discussing this. I know you're very close with working with the prisons and going back and speaking mm. to um, the prisoners. And I, I know from doing research, you spoke about an example where you spoke to. Real estate agents the one day and the prisoners the next day, right? Yeah, and, man. All and the Rolexes at the Royal Yacht Club and yeah. then Maximum Security Prison. Yeah. Um, you know, so what's the what's the vision, what's the drive for you mm. that has been the last period of time and going forward? You know, what is what you're trying to do to the world now? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, mm. there, there's still uncertainty there on my part in terms of of, you know, what I really want to aim for at the moment. I think what really motivates me is feeling that I am having a positive impact on other people. Mm -hmm. That's very motivational. And I hear that enough. I get that enough to feel motivated to carry on doing what I'm doing. Also as well, man, you know, like the pursuit of mastery and getting good at what you Mm do and feeling that you're playing to strengths, those are great things, whatever the vehicle for that is. So for me, I'm lucky in the sense that like, you know, doing a keynote at a conference Man, look, I don't want to shock you this early into our relationship, yeah. okay? <laughs> but I'm a show pony on the loose, man. You know, like I love that. I, I, yeah. I'm a really extroverted person. I find it really stimulating being in that environment. And it's something where I think I have strengths in terms of communication ability, but also, you know, being able to inject humor in that and communicate some important lessons that everyone can take away to, to be more effective in their own lives. 
So I really love that as a vehicle, and I want to carry on doing that and carry on pursuing mastery. Uh, but also as well, you know, it's like for me the most important roles in my life at the moment are husband and father yeah. outside of that. And I was reflecting on this the other day. You know, I'm all about development. I'm all about doing all this stuff that helps me get better at my work, reflecting on it. But this year I've really tried to shift that a little bit and apply that lens in my personal mm-hmm. life and go, well, if these areas are so important to me, why don't I invest a little bit of the time and energy that I would professionally mm-hmm. in terms of being a better husband and being a better father? Now, I'm starting from a pretty um, low base rate <laughs> yeah. there in terms of room for growth. Nothing but green fields ahead of yeah. me, eh? Opportunities for growth. But so actually that's a big focus for me at the moment. It's mm-hmm. really motivational is being more conscious and deliberate about getting better in those roles. And it's true. And the, and the wife taking out for more runs. Because she, yeah. she enjoys her runs, doesn't she? Well, she's a mountain bike rider. She's uh, a good runner. Yeah. I mean, her her aunt was an Olympic medalist yeah. in marathon. She, the whole family's nuts. But um, <laughs> oh, they really are, man. You, you just, I love it I've, that you say, you know, I've, ma- the- I've married into a family where you just <laughs> cannot not feel like a slouch. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I used to think I was pretty fit yeah. until I started dating her. And like now, like she's a, an elite athlete. She, you know, like we've just gone back from Europe where she's been racing in the World Cup series mm. and cross-country mountain bike riding. And, you know, everyone, anyone who's there, the, you, to qualify yeah. to get there yeah. is just mind-blowing. She'd be one of the only riders who's not on a professional team. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is like, you know, Olympic ring tattoos yeah. and national champions on pro teams and that. My wife is the only one who's there who's, like, not on pro team and is the only mum racing in that category, eh? You know, like, she is an absolute beast, and I say that in, you know, the the best way possible. Mm -hmm. She's very inspiring for me because I look at how much work she puts into Mm -hmm. being that good. And anyone who's been around elite athletes – Geez, if you get to see how the sausage is made, you're under no illusion about the work that goes into that. Like, it is not uncommon for me to see her after training rides lying on the ground crying Mm -hmm. because she's in so much pain because of what she's just put herself through. You know, that sort of level, being around that, man, is just like very inspiring. I consider my kids to be incredibly lucky to have a mum like that. So I'm kind of like the soft person in the relationship. (laughs) But it's good, yeah. It means I stay motivated to, uh, you know, keep out doing those little runs and that. When she is going for a run, I can sort of tag along a little bit. A little bit. I've got an e-bike now, though, bro. She got me an e-bike for my birthday. Literally, (laughs) it's the only way I can keep up. (laughs) It's the only way it's possible to keep up. Oh, that's crazy. But look at Paul. Look, as we're getting into the show, there's Mm. so much more to your story. You know, we didn't touch on about your dad and everything he did for you. And there's a reason why I left a few things out. Anyone that's still watching and listening at the moment is to go and find your book mm. on Audible or just down at Whitcalls and have a read of it. Story about your dad, how he supported you, is, mm. uh, you know, was inspired. Yeah, um, story about yourself, your wife at the moment and everything else. Mm. And something else that I, I know it's important to you, and I'm not saying it's cheesy, but something I know that's mm. close to your heart is um, your mom would be proud oh, of, of what you've done um, and what you're <sighs> trying to do. And that's one of the biggest things of why I spent a year to have a sit and have a discussion mm. with you because – we are both trying to change mm. the world mm. and we've both come from different situations mm. and we're trying to make a difference. Mm. And Paul, I thank you so mm. much for that opportunity, man. Mm. Hey, really appreciate it, Lawrence. 
And is there anything else as we sort of end off today that you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I didn't discuss any of the stuff I planned on discussing today. <laughs> you know, like I, I think what's really, really important is that we do think about who do we actually want to grow into as a person, mm-hmm. and we recognise that that's the journey, and we focus on the verbs. What are the actions we can take? Mm-hmm. What are the things that we can practice that will actually bring us closer towards being that person? None of us is a fixed entity. Mm-hmm. I used to think I was a certain type of person and that's it. Because change I made is realizing I could become whoever I was prepared to work hard enough to become. Yeah. And that's a really important message. You know, if you're prepared to do the work over time, you can grow into whoever you want to be. Mm-hmm. But also as well, hey, no one's sitting at the top of their mountain. It's an ongoing life journey. Totally is, Paul. And um, again, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity and sharing your message out there. And it's it's powerful. I love it. Uh, One final little joke about it. I I got through your book through Audible, even though I've got Mm. the physical Mm. year. And I was was listening one day, my daughter jumped into the car and then she said, and she goes, oh, you're listening to a book again. And I'm like, yeah. And then she read it and goes, how to escape from prison. There's the the book name right there. And she looked at me and she goes, dad, what are you reading? <laughs> Why are you trying to figure out how to escape from prison? So she had a lot oh, of questions to ask me funny. why I'm listening to And I said, no, this is the story. This is what it's about and everything else. And then mm. I said to her just a couple of days ago, oh, remember that book you found out? I'm going to go and speak to the guy whose book is in his story. And she's, yeah. she still gave me that weird look like, yeah. you're up to something. Yeah. There's something yeah. there that you know, you're, not talk, you're not telling me about. But um, Paul, um, thanks so much for that. Um, and to everyone else, again, as always, um, thanks for coming over to the Wolf of Queen Street podcast. Hope there's something from today's story, from Paul's story about overcoming adversity, overcoming challenges that we might have stumbled or found ourselves in, um, and and to learn and inspire to become better. As I always say at the end of the show, I don't care about the likes or the subscribes or the shares. I care about you taking something that could resonate with yourself or resonate with someone mm-hmm. else. Always make the joke, tell a friend that needs the help that you find the funniest video ever and share them my video. And maybe then they'll stumble on and make that difference. But thanks for coming over to the show. And as always, hope to see you again.